you would join me in your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6. Wonderful time of worship, wonderful hearing the testimonies from the baptisms. Last Sunday, I preached a sermon sharing with you the mission of our church, the course that we are charting what it means to be on the ship of Heritage Baptist Church. And with so many different voices and things vying for our attention and vying for our priorities, it is so important to remember the main thing because the mission of the church has not changed in 2,000 years. And our mission at Heritage, to make followers of Jesus Christ by living the gospel life among the nations. To make followers of Christ by living the fullness of the gospel life, both here in Lynchburg and around the world. Last week, I said some fairly direct things. And I received an email this past week, and I asked permission to read it to you this morning. It was written by one of our veterans here at Heritage, and this is what he wrote. You preach that we should welcome the Afghani people into Lynchburg. But you don't know what it's like to do a post-blast from an IED, seeing things the mind still struggles to comprehend. You also don't know what it's like not knowing if the next step you take will be your last. You don't know what it's like fighting an enemy that straps suicide vests to children. And you don't know what it's like to be a vet with PTSD from multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. But you know what? It doesn't matter. What you said on Sunday is right. We need to welcome these people in with open arms so we can use this opportunity to show these people God's love We're commanded to love them. It's just going to be a little harder for some of us to do this. But I'm trying. I'm just weak in this area. And then he closed with 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Despite this man's experiences and literal battles, this veteran has answered the call to live for a higher calling. He's admitted he's not perfect. None of us are. He has fought and lost friends, I'm sure, to this enemy. But like Jesus Christ loved enemies like you and me, he has chosen to love his enemy, though his excuses to not do so could be many. But he's laid those aside to be obedient to the Lord. Brother and sister, what is your excuse for not being obedient? 
That's a powerful testimony. Would you join me in prayer as we pray for our veterans, but also the Afghans? Jesus, we pray for our veterans. From Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, those who have incurred the moral injury, wondering what was it all for and was it worth it? Dealing with PTSD and the effects of having to stare death in the face. Father, we pray for their healing and blessing. But we also pray that they would see your goodness at work in the midst of the mess. And that you are working a bigger picture and may we take lessons from this man who had the courage to have a teachable heart. Father, we pray for the Afghan people, the Iraqi people, even the Vietnamese. These are people that as nations have been enemies of this nation. And yet we have seen over decades Vietnamese come to Jesus Christ. Iraqis come to Jesus Christ. And now as Afghans are coming to our borders, may we not see them as immigrants, as foreigners, as people that deserve our disdain or as the face of the enemy, but may we see them as you see them. People in need of God's grace and need the love of Jesus and that we might see them that there would we be but for the grace of God in our life. So Father, we pray that you would work great and mighty miracles, but also give strength to those for whose Experiences make specific commands a little bit more challenging than some of us to follow. Give them grace and strength. And in Jesus' name we pray all these things as we open your word. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6. I have no idea how to transition into this passage. But I believed that as that email so moved me, I pray that it moved you and challenged you as it challenged me. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 to 8, we're just going to dive right into this. Begins and says this. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, and of instruction in washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. 
A lovely cheery passage. I'm sure you're happy to be in church this morning. And yet we are working our way through Hebrews chapter, the, the book of Hebrews, and now specifically Hebrews chapter 6, verse by verse, to understand what this glorious and majestic book teaches us about who Christ is and what it means to be in relationship with him. There are a series of admonitions that describe who Christ is and what he has accomplished for us as his great high priest. But there's also a series of warnings. Warnings that are meant to guide us and to keep us on the track of following him. Now, we are working our way through Hebrews, and welcome if you are new, maybe you're visiting today. Uh, we're a church of broken people, all in need of God's grace. I say that so often that our, our people here, I think, know it by heart. But as we open God's word, I pray that you will see a God who loves you and that wants to rescue you, save you from your sins, and bless you with the fullness of his character. Now, Hebrews urges you to consider Jesus, first and foremost, above all others, he wants you to understand that Jesus is worthy of your worship and worth living for every day of your life. Hebrews, like I said already, also warns us against treating Christ casually, a casual faith, treating Christ and his sacrifice lightly. Now, warnings are not angry passages. They're not passages that we should shy away from. Matter of fact, the warnings in Scripture are statements of love and of grace. As surely as I would tell my child whom I love, don't go too close to that cliff because you might fall off and die. Likewise, the God who does not want anyone to perish but to come to an eternal life and understanding of who he is says, warning, this is life, this is death. Do not treat Christ lightly for he is the only means of salvation. As we read this passage, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, I have found over the years that many Christians really struggle with this passage because we ask questions like, does this passage teach that I can lose my salvation? That I can come to know Christ and experience all the Holy Spirit has to offer and the goodness of his works and then lose my salvation? Or further still, can I get to a point where I couldn't repent even if I wanted to, that God would somehow reject me because it's impossible, it says, to restore them to repentance. So how do we answer these critical questions? First, let's review for just a moment. The Old Testament, as I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, we're going to review for a moment because it's been a few weeks since we've been in Hebrews. But coming out of summer, we looked at an Old Testament survey and a New Testament survey. If we could sum up the Old Testament, the Old Testament is God speaking himself to bless us with his presence. He blessed Adam and Eve with Eden, the place and the abode of enjoying God's presence. But once Adam and Eve were estranged from God and all of mankind because of our sin, God continued to speak. He did not give up on mankind. He continued to speak and to reveal and to describe how man can be reconciled with God. The temple itself is an illustration of this, the holy of holies, the holy place, the outer courts. And God established the temple and the sacrificial system to teach that in order to re-enter the presence of God, the holy of holies, the very presence of God, we needed a mediator, a high priest, who would go on our behalf, and we needed a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, that would purchase that entry and reconcile us. 
And throughout the Old Testament is God speaking himself because he wants to draw people back to that Edenic reality of enjoying his presence. But here's the thing. Nobody could enter the very presence of God save the high priest once a year and with a blood sacrifice. So it's not complete. We come to the New Testament and God has shown himself. He spoke himself in the Old Testament and now he has shown himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has shown himself to bless us with his presence. That he is the Lamb of God, the sacrifice, the mediator who goes on our behalf into the holy of holies of heaven and not with the blood of lambs and goats but with his own blood. He goes into the holy place and he offers sacrifice once and for all that all who trust in his sacrifice cannot just stop at the outer courts but by the way of Christ. It's almost like as if Jesus comes back out and says, take my hand and on the basis of my sacrifice, I'm going to lead you all the way into my presence. All the way into the holy of holies. You know what eternal life is, brothers and sisters? It's not some sort of Catholic mythology of sitting on a club with a harp, uh, sitting with barely clothing there. No. That's just ridiculous mythology. And it shortchanges the glories of heaven. Rather, what the glories of heaven are is that on the basis of Christ, we don't stop at the outer courts, but we have been invited into the very holy of holy of heaven, into the very abode and the presence of God, where for all eternity we will behold the very face of God. And from moment to moment to moment for all of eternity, it'll never get boring. You cannot exhaust the eternal glory goodness, beauty, and being of God. Can you imagine? Have you ever stood at the Grand Canyon or looked and stood at some natural wonder and it just takes your breath away? You don't want to move because you're trying to take it all in. And you know what the Grand Canyon is? It's a big crack in the dirt. Did I just de-glorify it enough for you? What will it be like to be in the very presence of God and to behold the Trinitarian Godhead and all of their glory and beauty for all of eternity? It's beyond description. If a crack in the dirt can capture your attention, what will God do? God has shown himself in Jesus Christ to bless us with his presence. In the book of Hebrews, is arguing that Jesus is our great priest who is qualified. He's qualified to bring us all the way into the holy of holies. In chapter one, we see he's qualified because he is the king. He is God himself, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, that his throne is forever, that he is God, very God. There is no one better qualified. Chapter two shows us that he is a qualified sacrifice. He came in the flesh as a human in order to go to the cross and in his humanity die so that he might purchase us back for God. In chapter 3, we see that Jesus is better than Abraham, Moses, and Joshua. In chapter 4, that he is a glorious, great high priest. In chapter 5, he is greater than any earthly priest. And then in chapter 6, we are warned. So don't neglect him. Don't turn away from him. Don't outrage the spirit of grace. 
Because as he's out unpacking all of this, all the qualifications that Jesus is worthy to bring us into the very presence of God, there's also a series of warnings. In chapter two, the writer says, don't drift from God and so easy to drift. Oh, this heart so prone to wander, so prone to leave the God I love, as the song says. Don't neglect him, chapter two. Beware unbelief. Beware of sin that hardens you. We all struggle and battle with sin, but beware as you embrace sin, it will harden your heart from the things of God. Beware. Don't lose your fear of God. Chapter four. We live in a society where we don't fear anything, unfortunately. We fear the machinations of our own imagination, but we don't fear God. Least of all, we fear God. We do not reverence him. We do not treat him and worship him as he is, the great God of heaven. Be careful that you don't lose your fear of God. And then chapter five, don't become dull of hearing. Where we come in and we're like, ah, I've heard that before. I dare you to bless me, pastor. Some of you, I pray that as you've come in with hungry hearts, that the Lord would fill up that hungry heart and satisfy your soul. Some of you have come in and your hearing is dulled, and so I pray that the Lord would break through to your heart with his word today. But don't become dull of hearing. Keep growing, chapter 6, verse 1 to 2 says, and then we come to our passage today. Don't offend, don't outrage the spirit of grace. Here's the big idea. I'm going to give you the big idea that kind of encapsulates this passage. It's a long, big idea, so forgive me, I'll give it to you a couple of times. Here's the big idea. After being brought so close to his presence, beware turning your back on Jesus and outraging the spirit of grace. After being brought so close to his presence, Beware turning your back on Jesus and outraging the spirit of grace. So you don't think that I'm speaking in hyperbole by saying outraging the spirit of grace, which is a very strong statement. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29 to 31, here at the back of Hebrews, another warning is appeared, and this is what it says. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Here's what I want to argue for this morning, because we see in this passage, and again going back to the question, can you lose your salvation? Because it looks like those who've enlightened, who've tasted, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted of the goodness of the Word of God, they fall away, it's impossible to restore them to repentance. The question is, can you lose your salvation or move to a point where you can no longer repent? Here's what I want to argue for this morning. Number one, this is a Christian audience. He is speaking to a Christian audience. But this is key. Number two, not all in the Christian audience are true believers. 
There are some out there who are playing the game, who are putting on the facade. They talk the part, look the part, but inside they have never bowed their hearts in submission and said, I am a sinner, have mercy be on me, O God, and I trust in Jesus, my only hope for salvation. But they're basking in the warmth of other people's faith. So there's a Christian audience. Not all in the audience are true believers. And number three, like Israelites that the writer of Hebrews makes the argument and we need to argue within the context of his argument. In chapter three, he says, the Israelites saw all the wonders of God. They came close. They came to Moriah. They saw the Red Sea. They're on the outside of the tabernacle. They see the glory of God. They have been brought close by the mercy of God. And then they're like, eh, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And they turn their backs and they outrage the spirit of grace. That be careful that we, like the Israelites, enjoy proximity to blessing, but have never believed. I also want to remind you of the high priest imagery. That as Jesus is our high priest that brings us in, the Holy Spirit draws us, and he's the one that brings us to Christ, who takes us into the Holy of Holies. That Jesus wants to bless you with his presence but you want to stay in the outer courts. Just kind of observe from afar, close enough where you've never made that decision. Be careful after receiving so much grace that you refuse him and then you offend and outrage the spirit of grace. Now, how do you outrage the spirit of grace? Well, let's start looking through this passage. He gives us four things. People who have been enlightened, who've tasted, who've shared, and then tasted. First one, They've been enlightened. In other words, the Greek word photizo, to be enlightened with truth. That the Holy Spirit has given them some measure of understanding truth. They come, they see, they comprehend. There is an enlightened understanding of the things of God. And they have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, now this word here is usually used to denote something that you experience cognitively. Or maybe emotionally. You've come, you've tasted of the heavenly gift. You've come here, you've been moved by the worship, you enjoy the preaching, you've been moved, you've tasted it, but you've never taken it for your own and eaten it. You're looking for, for, for a little bit of a tapas Christianity, a little bit of a buffet where you can taste just this and that, but you're never actually entering in. You want to experience it from afar. They have shared, partaken in the Holy Spirit. Now people will say, see, this is believers who can lose their salvation. I would argue and say, no, these words are nowhere used in the New Testament to describe absolutely those who are believers. And when speaking about believers in the Holy Spirit, it says that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. There is no post-salvific filling of the Holy Spirit. When you get saved, when you bow the knee and trust in Jesus Christ, he fills you with his Holy Spirit then and there. Partaking or sharing in, as this word is metokous in the Greek, has the idea of being associated with the Holy Spirit. Those who associate but are not filled with you say, is, is, there, is there scriptural evidence for this? Well, Saul, King Saul. 
It says in the Old Testament that King Saul, the Holy Spirit, rushed upon him so that he was speaking like one of the prophets. He was, had a momentary empowerment for God to accomplish something through him, but actually Saul rebelled, disbelieved, and died in unbelief. He was not a believer. Let me also say this, that Jesus himself said, are there not going to be many on those days that said, Lord, Lord, did we not perform miracles, cast out demons, and do all of these things in your name? In other words, they're associated with the Holy Spirit and his workings. But what did Jesus say? Depart from me, I never knew you. What about Ananias and Sapphira? The book of Acts. They associated with the people of God and the people of the Holy Spirit, yet their hearts were corrupt. They thought they could use the Holy Spirit for their own gain and for their own purposes. Or Simon Magnus later on in the book of Acts. People who responded and even received it gladly, but they never believed and they offended the Spirit of grace. They've tasted of the goodness of the Word of God. Did you know that King Herod loved to hear John the Baptist speak? It actually says in the Gospel of Mark that, that Herod loved to hear John speak. And then the very next paragraph, he beheads him. You can actually enjoy the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God without letting it ever sink into your heart. In the Greek here, there are two passives and two middle voices. Now here's how I'm going to describe it for you. The first one is enlightenment. That you have passive been enlightened. In other words, something has worked on you. That's the passive voice. So the Holy Spirit enlightened you, and then you tasted. Middle voice, which means you did it yourself. The Holy Spirit gave you enlightenment, but you decided just to taste instead of to take all of it. And then the Holy Spirit gave you a sharing, acted upon you, that you might experience some of the blessings. He's trying to draw you in, but instead of sitting down and feasting, once again, you taste it. And then if you fall away, you cannot be restored. Why? Because you're crucifying, once again, the Son of God, holding him up to contempt and shame. You are outraging the Spirit of grace. Now, I think that probably some of you, your spirits are quite disturbed at the moment. There's a lot of questions. I want to answer some of them if I can very practically. First of all, what does this passage teach about the Holy Spirit? Well, it shows that the Holy Spirit is the one who draws people to the Son. At the sovereign direction of the Father to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit then draws people to the Son to show them the glories of the Son. He brings the most precious gift to your awareness by giving you enlightenment, understanding. By seeing and sharing some of the blessings, by drawing you in. And then you say, no, I don't want it. Beware that you outrage the Spirit who longs to make the Son and the Father known. Who loves the Son and the Father more than anything. Whose office and operation is to draw you. You may outrage him so that he no longer comes to move upon your heart. You've been drawn so close to his presence, by his presence, but his presence has been refused. Like the ancient Israelites in Psalm 95, God says, when your fathers put me to the test 
and put me to the proof. Though they had seen my work, they had seen my work, but they still tested me. And for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people that go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is weighty, weighty truth. That after being given so much grace that you can reject it to the point where God covenants with his own character your condemnation, your damnation. I swear he or she will never enter my rest because I gave them so much and yet they still rejected me. Numbers chapter 14, verse 22 to 23. None of the men, God says, who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, none of them shall see the land that I swore to their fathers. I showed them myself and yet they rejected me. Now you may be asking, wait a moment, hold on, does that mean just one mistake and I can outrage God and then that's it? Oh, don't misunderstand Scripture. How many times did he reach out to Israel? How many times did he try and draw them back? How many times did he show them his grace? Well, you may say, well, that's the Old Testament, but the New Testament God is different. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 to 24, this is Jesus. And he's ministering in Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, these sweet, beautiful little Jewish towns on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. He showed, him, he showed them himself. He showed them his glories and his majesty and miracles. And this is what Jesus said. Matthew 11, verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Here's the Son of God. He has shown himself. And who's going to have the greater judgment? Sodom and Gomorrah? It's one of the most ungodly cities in the history of the world. It's one of the most sexually perverse peoples in the history of the world. Beside a Chorazin and Capernaum, you know what they look like? Moral, religious Jews. They knew the law. They lived outwardly moral lives. They had great revelation from God. And yet when shown Jesus, these guys would have repented. Jesus says, you didn't repent. You know who's going to get the greater damnation? It isn't the sexually perverse here. It is the ones who had access and yet refused it. Brothers and sisters, here in Lynchburg, Virginia, in the Bible Belt of the South, we are Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum. Take warning. You think that the greatest judgment is going to fall on some people's half a world away? You who have had so much and have been in church week after week and yet refused? Beware. 
Now, what does it mean that they cannot be restored here? The scripture in chapter 6 says that they cannot be restored to the place of repentance. I want to say this parenthetically, unequivocally, clearly, so that there is no misunderstanding. Here's the parenthesis. Before we answer that question, I want you to hear that anyone who wants to repent can. Let me say that again. Anyone who wants to follow Jesus, who wants to believe in Jesus, in no way and in no capacity, God will never refuse them. Can I be any more clear than that? If you want Jesus, if you want to repent and follow him, there is no rejection possible. Now you say, well, how do we reconcile this that it's impossible for them to be restored? Because these people have moved themselves away from God, not simply because of battles with sin, but willful rejection of everything that God stands for by their life and desires, they have moved themselves into a place of hardness, of unrepentance. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, when we characterize ourselves and moving ourselves into a place of rejection of God, at some point, we are not given a timeline, but at some point, it says in Romans 1, 28, that God gives us over to a debased mind, a mind that literally has the, the inability to make moral or godly decisions. God gives us over. And then this brings on the judgment of God where the Holy Spirit no longer moves to draw the hearts. To outrage the spirit of grace is when we move ourselves into a place of unrepentance and then we come to a place where we no longer can repent because we've become so debased in our rejection of God and the Holy Spirit ceases to move upon our hearts to convict us of our need for God. We need to understand something. You are not morally neutral. Every single one of this, if this is the precipice often to eternal hell, all of us, without exception, are just marching gleefully, happily, joyfully into eternal damnation. Our internal flesh is not morally neutral. We desire sin. We love sin. We desire evil. We love evil. We are marching forward into the abyss of eternity. But for the sovereign grace of God, where the Holy Spirit says, not this one, not this one, and not this one. And by his grace and mercy, he rescues us from the pit of hell. But when we choose to continually reject him and characterize, then the Holy Spirit stops reaching for our heart and soul. And he withdraws himself. It's like Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Who hardened his heart, himself or God? Yes. The Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. He moved himself into a place of hardness. All of the signs and wonders that were given to him, he rejected. He hardened his heart. And then it says God hardened his heart. What does God have to do to harden a heart? All he has to do is withdraw. Because when we withdraw, we naturally go deeper into our sin and debasement. That is a biblical understanding of humanity. He does not have to say, hard heart, tough luck on you. All he has to do is just remove his hand of grace and your heart will harden. What does it mean then to crucify Christ again? 
It means that you agree with the crucifixion and everything it stood for. Not positively, but you agree with crucifying Christ. You may not say, I I wouldn't crucify him, but I want my own life. I want my own affections. I don't want what he gives. It is to make a mockery of Christ after tasting him. Now you may say, but wait, what about children in a Christian home that turn their back or a brother who, he did experience everything. He heard the truth, he knows, and yet he rejects. Well, let me give you hope and warning. The hope is that God can still save Apostle Paul's out there. The hope is that Paul, who had more revelation and yet willfully rejected Christ, but the Holy Spirit said, no, you're going to be mine. And he overpowered Paul's will, not in a way of overriding his will, but broke down that heart. And Paul was rescued. Praise God for that. But for every Paul, there's a thousand other Jews who said, I don't want him. What does this mean in the life of a believer? Don't be casual with Jesus. If you're hearing this word, you're growing up in a Christian home or you grew up in a Christian home, don't treat Jesus lightly. You have been given grace of access. Don't treat Christ lightly. And the warning here is a grace of God to preserve you and to keep you and to make sure that you don't fall off that cliff. Don't treat him lightly. What does the illustration of the land teach about true belief? Well, God rains down his blessings on the land. It's his grace, the Holy Spirit enlightening and partaking and giving and showing himself. And some land gives death, thorns. And some land brings forth life. Two soils, an unbelieving soil and a believing soil. There is no third soil where it's believing that then loses their salvation. It is illustrating that the believing soil brings forth life and fruit to the glory of God. The book of Hebrews teaches us that there is no casual Christianity. That your continuance in the faith is one of the proofs that you truly belong to Jesus. Don't play the game. Don't play the religious game that says, I'll trust in Jesus tomorrow because you may reject him today. You say, when when do I outrage the spirit of grace? We don't know that. We are not given a timeline, just a warning. So you may say, I'll believe tomorrow. I'll get my life right tomorrow and the Holy Spirit will stop moving on your heart today and tomorrow you won't want it. When is the point of outraging? I, I don't know. The point is, don't even flirt with the possibility. Now you may ask and say, oh my goodness, so can we know that we are saved or is this just a, a, to to put in doubt? No, we're going to spend next week also looking at this passage, but can you know that you are saved? Keep reading chapter six, because though as he is warning the believers in here in the book of Hebrews, he also says, but I have assurance about you. I believe that what God has done in you is real. And because of that, Romans eight, there is no condemnation. No one can separate you from the love of God. Can you know that you are in Christ and have security and joy? Absolutely, because whom Christ rescues, he will never let go. And you can be secure in his hand. But the warning is, don't play 
casual Christianity with Jesus. Be careful that you come so close and yet reject him and outrage the spirit of grace. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for this morning. And we pray that you would grant us the grace continually of seeing our need for you. Would you confirm in us that we belong to you? Would we constantly have the spirit of humility that says, do I treat Christ lightly? And Father, I also pray that you would work in a mighty way to draw people here who are just playing the game, who haven't really believed and bowed the knee and said, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Oh God, bless us this day as we go forward. This is hard truth. But may we walk in it for your glory. May we be faithful to the calling you've put on our life. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would stand with me this morning. If you have any questions or you want someone to pray with you, I'll be up here. There'll be people down here to pray with you, talk with you. But I send you forth with this, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, God bless you are dismissed.